Welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett and I'm Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know by now, we have three different types of podcasts. We have our 10-minute lesson series, which is a very brief overview of some of the main topics we think you need to know about. We have our seminar series, which is a look back at some of our seminars and our conferences to listen to our expert speakers. And then we have our interview series, and today is one of those. Today, I'm speaking to Keith Adams of the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice, and we're going to talk all things prisons and restorative justice. I hope you enjoy it. So, Keith, thank you so, so much for agreeing to do this with me. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Um, thanks, Glenn. Uh, thanks for having me on Social Justice Matters podcast. Um, it's a pleasure to actually have a microphone um, pushed in front of me and just uh, just encouraged to ramble about uh, a topic that I'm not overly uh, overly on top of. But um, you know, it's, it's great to be great to be involved. Um, uh, yeah, great. Um, just to start off, just in case there are some listeners who who don't know very much about your organisation, can you just give a, a briefish overview of the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice? Uh, because I have to say, I was surprised at just how wide ranging um, the topics that you deal with are and the fact that there's a refugee service and just that whole connection. So if you wouldn't mind and then your own role in it, please. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, so the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice, we're, we're based in the northeast inner city of Dublin. Um, my office is in the, the garden level, it's called, but um, really it's the basement of the um, the St. Francis Xavier um, Parish building. Um, and so this is close to Mountjoy Square and Mountjoy Prison, so probably halfway between both. Um, and we, like you mentioned, we share the the, the garden level um, with the Jesuit Refugee Service. They're just down the hall from us. Um, and they would be an example of another of the justice works within the, the Irish Jesuit province as well. Um, the centre itself is uh, it's just over 40 years old. It was originally started um, by a small community of Jesuits in Ballymun. Um, and then it moved to Sherrod Street at a later stage. And then its current home is in the Gardner Street uh, parish here. Um, with, its, with its origins about 40 years ago in Ballymun, um, uh, kind of the the stimulus for its creation was um, in the early eighties. Uh, there was it was a serious economic recession. There was high levels of immigration, and there was I suppose grinding levels of unemployment. And I suppose this was particularly pronounced in Ballymun. Um, so that that kind of provided the, the catalyst for the the centre starting. And I suppose the centre has always had a sense of um, uh, solidarity of, with those who experience poverty, who, who are excluded from uh, society and who experience discrimination. And I suppose the centre has always kind of sought to amplify those voices. Um, and But I suppose over time, our focus as, as Irish society has changed and as different issues have come to the fore, um, the issues that are central to the centre have changed as well. So at present, our, our fo- areas of focus are, are fourfold. Um, we have prison policy, we have the housing crisis and homelessness, economic justice and ecological justice as well. Um, and so I suppose where, where these four fit together is within I suppose, an overall vision to create a fair and equitable society, society for all. Um, and I suppose we, we primarily would aim to do this through through a number of mechanisms. So we have social um, uh, social analysis and policy analysis would be kind of one strand of that. 
um, but then also political advocacy, theological reflection, um, and then education as well. We're, we're often uh, brought into kind of the school networks as well to kind of do talks and various things. Um, and I suppose one advantage of kind of having multiple issues of concern, kind of similar to similar to your work with Social Justice Ireland, is that um, you're able to kind of draw the connections and draw the links across the different areas as well. Um, to use that kind of dreadful uh, MBA type language that you're able to cross pollinate across areas and kind of, uh, I, I actually, I, I probably puked a little in my mouth kind of saying that there, but. Uh, <laughs> Good, because I definitely uh, did. Yeah. Uh, I, I like to think more in terms of policy coherence, but you know, yeah, whatever, yeah. MBA, that's yeah. fine. I've you are here beside me. I've just put in your own. Um, Good. So I suppose, I think our, um, so, so I suppose how that works is then it's, it forces us as as four. There's four, there's four full time staff, and then we have um, uh, Peter McVerry, who's part of our staff as well. But Peter's uh, got so many hats on that he he he's with us um, for a couple hours a week. Um, but there's four full time staff, and I suppose what 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 the having multiple areas, it kind of focuses forces us to collaborate. Um, but also we've also realised that. Um, as you as, as you will have kind of seen as well that kind of um, economic justice is kind of key to prison policy and economic justice is key to housing policy and then housing policy is key to economic or to um, environmental justice as well so you have all these kind of connections and it helps you to kind of have a maybe a more robust analysis and then maybe slightly more nuanced kind of uh, proposals and kind of solutions as well um and then I suppose just personally, my title is as social policy advocate. Um, so this is primarily kind of a dual role of uh, social research and um, advocacy of kind of that research and those kind of proposals as well. So I'm in the position of about three years. Um, initially, when I started, I kind of had the remit of uh, housing policy and prison policy. Um, but earlier in this year, my role has just been uh, narrowed down uh, just to uh, prison policy. So prison policy is the area we are focusing on today. Yeah. Um, and I, like Nick Clifford has been doing some smashing work on this over recent years, actually, in the examiner. Um, but a, a particular focus he's had recently, and certainly since last July-ish, um, was on DOCUS and the reports or lack of public reports um, into the centre. Can you give us a little bit of background on that? Yeah, I, I think you've. Um, I think I think mixed work, and I think the work of the examiner. I think for anyone that's particularly interested in the issues of um, prisons in Ireland, um, and particularly female imprisonment in Ireland, I think it's it's well worth um, going back over those um, over the course of the last couple of years, and even even earlier than that as well. Um, but I suppose, yeah, I think that's uh, I suppose a helpful place for us maybe to start is to kind of is to outline maybe the three different. Uh, docus reports which um which we're talking about and then maybe we can we can kind of chat from there um, just if anybody doesn't know docus is the women's prison up opposite mount joy yes so the docus center is the is the uh, medium security female um prison which is in the grounds of of the mount joy uh, campus as well um and so there are there were three reports um originating from the DOCA Centre, which were submitted to the Minister for Justice by the former Inspector of Prisons um, before the Inspector left, um, left office in February of this year. Um, the first report is a COVID uh, thematic inspection report, which is part of a 
a wider series um, of inspection reports that were conducted by the office um, during the pandemic. Um, during this time, each prison in Ireland was visited by the inspector and uh, members of her team. Um, and these these th these COVID thematic reports kind of focused on the on the steps taken by the prison service to limit the spread of COVID nineteen and the effects which cocooning and quarantine so and quarantine would have had in prison. So quarantine was um, the time that people were isolated whenever they entered prison, um, and then cocooning was the isolation that occurred. The, isolate, the isolatory measures which occurred for older and more vulnerable prisoners um, as, as a means of kind of protecting them whenever we were, when it, I suppose when we were thinking back to the early stages of the pandemic when we didn't have a vaccine, we had no sense of when a vaccine would arrive and that we had to take these very real physical kind of restrictive measures um, so so that was, and so and then the, the COVID thematic reports also would have considered um, the mental, the well-being and the mental health of prisoners as well um, so the, the, these 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 uh, thematic COVID thematic reports were essential um, at that time, um, and but the COVID thematic report for the Doka Centre has been already been published. So it's one of the three, and it's already been published. So we have we have one down. We've seen one of the three. Um, so the other two reports is where it gets a it gets it gets uh, it gets much more complicated. Um, so the first of the other two reports is a. Uh, is a three-day monitoring report, which was uh, conducted by the inspector. You mentioned there it's, it's, it was one of the three. Yeah. Am I right in thinking that all of the other prisons who were inspected for these kind of COVID compliance inspections or, or thematic reports, they got one visit and DOCUS got three visits? The, it, um, that's correct. It got, uh, there was, there was, uh, there was two other, yeah, there was two other reports Um based on that because of issues that arose um, at a later stage. Um, so it, the DOCA Centre was very much the focus of the, I think, the inspection team over that kind, over the last kind of um, year and a half, um, just because I think of the, the seriousness of the issues. So I suppose that that brings us then to the other two reports. So the other two reports, the, one is a, is a three-day monitoring report, um, and then the other was a statutory investigation, which was ordered by the minister. And both of these reports remain um, unpublished, despite the statutory investigation being submitted to the minister in early February. Uh, and the three-day monitoring report was submitted to the minister much earlier. But I suppose over the past year, the minister has been, has been resolute that she would not publish the three-day monitoring report until she also received the statutory investigation. Um, the, I suppose the rationale uh, the department gave for this was that they wanted to interpret the statutory investigation in light of the findings of the three-day monitoring report. But this has now not happened, that there's been a kind of a, a, a rowing back on kind of this, this kind of commitment or this kind of um, tacit commitment. And instead, based on the advice of department, legal counsel that neither report will now be published so i suppose what was maybe helpful is we have these uh, two unpublished reports but maybe a, a timeline um might be helpful to kind of understand just a little bit more kind of of, of why this kind of consumed so much of the time of the inspector and, and her, her office at that time so and can i um, ask a question just in relation have, to the the obligation or otherwise to hmm. publish are these statutory reports are they not obliged to be in the the public domain are they not um i i think um i think based presumably on, uh, anything sensitive could be redacted you know that that there is this kind of 
clean hands thing. Yeah, I think I think I think any I think any investigation, as I understand it, any investigation based on the legislation that undergirds or on or undergirds the office of the inspector of prisons, any report um, that is uh, that is completed by that office is then submitted to the department and to the minister. And then it is the, at the behest of the minister then whether it's published or not. So, um, so the, there, is, there is no direct route, there's no, there's no clear route or no legislative route for direct publication by the, the office of the inspector, unfortunately. So I think even something with the title of uh, a statutory investigation can, can remain unpublished um, as well. And I suppose redaction then brings its own issues as well, um, or even yes. kind of the publication of recommendations that kind of is, it can be can be an issue as well. Um, uh, but I suppose the so just to give a little bit more of a sense of the uh, of the two unpublished reports, um, the monitoring report was compiled by the inspector um, over the course of three visits. So, like you kind of pointed out. Other presidents only received maybe one or one visit to kind of compile the the COVID report, and then the DOCA suddenly had a series of three separate visits in April and May of 2022. The inspector did not say what initiated the monitoring visits or the contents of the report, but this was submitted to the minister in April 2023, so a couple of months after the the report was or the investigation was. Um, was initiated. Um, and we know this from the annual report of the Inspector of Prisons. The, the, the Office of the Inspector of Prisons published an annual report every year and the, the 2020 annual report kind of uh, uh, pointed out that this had been submitted to the Minister. Um, and then according to uh, the reports of the examiner, um, uh, the Office of the Inspector of Prisons was then made aware of serious issues um, within the DOCA Centre in July 2020. So as the as the report for the three-day monitoring um, uh, uh, investigation was being completed, then other issues arose as well. So the inspector brought these allegations to the minister and then and made her aware. Um, and then, so as much as we know um, and has been reported by the media, the allegations kind of, uh, they suggest that um, a prisoner um, was being induced or manipulated by um, by senior members of uh, the prison staff team uh, to bring complaints of malpractice against another staff member um, as well. So th- this is kind of what we know from um, the examiner's reporting. Um, so under um, so under Section Thirty One of the Prisons Act, the Minister ordered a statutory um, inquiry, and this was then to be completed very promptly. It was to be completed by the end of December twenty twenty, uh, within a couple of months. Um, and I suppose to add a bit of context as well, under the Prisons Act, the the issue or the the commencement of a statutory inquiry is actually quite a relative is a relatively rare occurrence as well. They're not quite frequent. Um, so this kind of illustrates the seriousness that these allegations that the the seriousness of the allegations that were brought to the minister that she would um do this so promptly i suppose what's key with the statutory investigation with the with the aims for it to be published by december 2020 the submission of this report to the minister was actually delayed by over a year until early 2020 um and this has been suggested again media sources were incredibly dependent on these at the moment um, that this was due to a failure of staff to um, present themselves in a prompt manner for 
for interview um for it so it was a it was a it was a manner of kind of stymieing and delaying the the investigative process um and so shortly after the submission of the statutory investigation report the inspector of prisons then resigned with effect on the 16th of february uh, this early this year so in short that's kind of kind of the main milestones that have been kind of happening over the past two years to give a sense of of, of when things were meant to be made available, uh, promises are made, and then what actually can happen as well. And the inspector the, of prisons, when, when she resigned, you know, was there any discussion? Was there any public engagement about why that might have been the case? Or I suppose that's actually, yeah, that's it. I, I think what's, 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 what's useful there to think is that... Um, we we know very little about um, the two the two reports that have remained unpublished. Um, we only have very very skeleton kind of suggestions, kind of whisper whisper and rumor as such. So we can't judge that. But but what we can judge um, is the is the circumstances and the actions that have kind of happened, kind of in and around the the reports, both being submitted and both not both not the non action have been published. So so firstly, I think the. The decision of the minister um, and our officials to not publish either report suggests that the contents and the findings are very serious. I think you can just draw that straight away as a conclusion and serious to the extent that she received legal counsel not to do so. Um, but then if we but I suppose if we if we tease that apart, the kind of the decision to not publish, if the findings are so serious, then this is a kind of a sense that there's an even greater demand for for public scrutiny and examination for for such issues to be aired out to kind of the the the, the cold the whole light of day as such, um, and to prevent both future harm to prison staff um, and prisoners. That, but I think the case here is that this gives the impression that the contents are so p- potentially damaging because they're damaging to the reputation of the department and the and state institutions. But we have to remember that harms to the institutions of the state and, inst- and harms to prisoners are two different things. They're both harm, but they're both they're very different. And they're felt um, very differently. You know, that there is like I understand the kind of institutional mindset in terms of there there has to be seen to be good in order for there to be trust in institutions. Yeah. But the harm that is experienced by an institution and in that trust can be built up again over time where there is damage. The yeah. harm to an individual, particularly to an individual who has no doubt experienced harm over a, a period, is a very different type of harm. It's a very, you know, and that there needs to be a waiting, I would, I would say, um, in terms of what, what harm is prioritized and what harm is, is dealt with. Um, I know Mick Clifford, when he was reporting on um, the inspector's resignation, mm-hmm. it was that she she didn't seek an extension once her contract had expired um, on the basis that she she wasn't she was of the view that she couldn't fulfill her role. Her role was being thwarted. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's quite damning, again, in terms of well, the type of job that she has. So, you know, her job is essentially to report on the system. And to report on the institutions and how well they're functioning and they're running and the, the safety of the, the both yeah. the staff and the prisoners. Um, and that she can say she needs to, to leave because her role is being thwarted at every turn. You know, that that is that's a very serious. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think I agree with you. And I think I think I think the words I think what was what was quoted was that um, she couldn't in all conscience, I think, continue in the role due to kind of um, not being able to execute the role. But I, th- I think we have, to, I suppose, to 
to reflect and I suppose I've reflected a little bit on it as well over over kind of the past few months and the, the decision of a person um a person doesn't doesn't typically resign a role like the inspector of prisons this is a very this is a very high rank and role like it's one of the one of the most senior roles kind of within kind of adjacent to kind of the department of justice as such and, and I suppose especially um especially at the, the former inspector who was a highly regarded civil servant. She was a uh, former chief executive of, of, of um, the Mental Health Commission. Um, so this, this wouldn't have been something that she that would have been taken lightly by, by any stretch. Um, and I think it also, there's also, I think there's also tremendous loss um, to both the oversight of prisons in Ireland, but I think, uh, her loss of expertise in the area of mental health is key as well because the Department of Justice are, are currently trying to are meetings for the the mental health task force kind of that kind of Department of Justice HSC kind of body are starting to, are starting to have meetings um, and her expertise is a huge loss in that area as well um, so so I, I think I don't think that would have been because I think she's she resigned a year early. I think there was a year left until 2023. So, um, so like you don't happen, you don't hear that happening very often, or I, and especially in the times I've been kind of attuned to Irish politics, I haven't, I don't, I'm not very familiar with that happening. So, that, like you said, it does point to um, a real seriousness there as well. And then I suppose we also, if we, if we, if we add in the contents of a of the of a 2020. Um, resignation letter by a former chaplain in the Doka Centre as well. Within that, where women described their lives as as, as a hell within the Dukas as well. And, we, and we've heard that kind of language before in other kind of um, state inquiries into other institutionalisation as well. And when we when we piece all these things together, I think we, we start to see an environment surrounding female imprisonment that really gives a lot of pause for thought. That's, and I suppose what's key is the sense that imprisonment is, is carried out in our names by the state, that they are given uh, particular um, institutions of the state are given responsibility to um, to kind of maintain maintain order, but also kind of to do so in a in a humane um, way as well. And this is a window into that, and that should be deeply troubling for us as well, because we're 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 part of people. People are part of the state, and the state does this, so we should we should have pause for thought for that. That um, does lead me to another kind of part of this, um, two kind of very deeply connected parts of this, I suppose, that whole issue of, of safety in prisons and what is acceptable for people, because certainly, you know, you'll see it on social media sometimes, particularly when there's a, a very high profile case, um, that it isn't enough for, for some, for the mob, um, to just lock someone away to, to put somebody into prison but that that their life must be terrible their life must you know be made absolutely miserable while they're in prison and yeah. nothing is too awful and you know and I think that's a very damaging type of narrative I mean the idea behind a prison is that you lose your liberty yeah. that's it yeah. you know it's yeah. not about losing every single human right and I don't say that is that's it in any kind of light-hearted context I mean in terms of that is punishment it's yeah. not about every human right that you have. It's not about degradation and personal safety. It's about you've you've lost the right to your own liberty. You you know you're you're stuck to a very tight schedule in terms of your time and in terms of the things you are and aren't allowed to do as a as a grown adult or as a human being. Um, and you know there's a there are particular issues in terms of women's safety 
um, within the prison system, but also kind of very directly related to that is this idea of, as you say, institutionalization and what that says about us as a society. Is that something that we want? Is that something that we want done in our name and that we want these kinds of, of reports, you know, to be put out there, as you say, on our behalf? Yeah, um, I, th- I think I, I, I'll probably I'll probably go through kind of um, your your kind of questions there. I think um, I think there's a number of things. I think with I'll I'll, I'll just I'll keep it to um, the specificity of kind of female imprisonment. Just it's, it's easier than kind of because it gets very complex if we go beyond that. But yeah, I think I I agree. I think loss of liberty, but um, even even that can even even the idea of loss of liberty can be almost seen as like a neutral thing, like something that's that's not harmful in itself either. That must be is a tremendously difficult thing when we maybe start to maybe try and empathize and put ourselves in that position as well of what it what it is to be removed from family social networks um uh children's uh partners whatever that is um and for that for that cell door to close behind you and for you to realize that you're there for the foreseeable future um with no pretty much all your agency kind of removed so I, I think I think even even to say that loss of liberty um, is okay can be there's definitely room to kind of start to argue that as well that kind of the sense that um, that prison in itself is is a is a harmful place um, uh, even even if it is humane um, but I suppose if we're to to go back to kind of the idea of thinking about safety in in prisons as well. Um, I think I think a key issue within that that kind of has an effect on safety within female imprisonments in, in Ireland is over is the idea of overcrowding um, or the kind of the phenomenon of overcrowding because overcrowding is a very helpful entry point to kind of think about how we've imprisoned women over the last kind of couple of years or the last probably five years uh, or so. Um, so at present, the Doka Centre um, can hold up to 146 prisoners. Um, so this is kind of the the official uh, this is kind of the official set, uh, cell capacity, um, but it was originally only designed for 105 prisoners. So um, what happened was um, the uh, in kind of late December 2019, there was uh, the the Centre was coming coming under, or I suppose the the Department of the Minister were coming under a piece of pressure due to kind of continuing overcrowding within the Doka Centre. Um, so a decision was made that, so I, I jokingly say that somebody arrived with a tape measure of pen and kind of the minimum standards uh, for cell occupancy. And they decided that um, that the cells, cell, some cells in the Doka Centre could be doubled up and that you could then have, have more women in prison. So so overnight... Um, and full on co-living. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, even before the boutique hotels. Uh, <laughs> um well, that's a scary thought that we're taking our housing policy uh, lead from penal policy. Um, uh, that's something for some to ponder, or maybe so if we think about uh, housing hubs and family hubs. I think you you've given me an idea for another paper, uh, Colette. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, but I suppose the the idea is that just o- overnight, with a stroke of a pen, um, the official capacity of the local centre increased by about almost fifty um, percent, um, and there was no prisoner was released there was no additional uh, extension no additional cells so and and the thing with kind of overcrowding is that that it increases tensions so you already have you have a very you have a population um within prison who 
there'll be addiction issues. There'll be people that will be on um, methadone programs. There'll be people that will be on psychiatric medication. And the increased proximity to each other in an overcrowded space, overcrowded prison that maybe um, not even having your own cell, your own kind of space, your own personal space um, to withdraw to from kind of maybe the, the chaos of kind of that's around you. Um, that'll naturally lead to kind of tensions and bullying and uh, manipulate and and kind of maybe discriminations, various things. So, so there is kind of there are kind of structural issues at play there that kind of cause kind of safety issues as well, and um, that that could be addressed by actually having a more uh, or or a more kind of uh, um, a prison policy that's that's slower to imprison people in in the Doka Centre. But I, I think I think it's I think it's helpful to kind of draw the links between female imprisonment and violence against women in Irish society at the moment. I think there's some useful guides that can help us kind of think about this a little bit more. So so I think following the recent murders of women in Ireland, which have been shocking and senseless, um, and all those adjectives probably don't go far enough to describe uh, kind of what what has occurred. Um, and this is not to say that these are just a recent phenomenon. I think it's just been the the, the compressed nature of so many so close together. But these are, this has been this is um, part of Irish society for a long time. Um, but I think there's been a collective enough is enough um, on this. Um, and I suppose this has resulted in the Department of Justice um, being tasked with the role of eliminating violence against women um, in all forms. And they've kind of responded by saying, which is a natural kind of reflex, I think, the idea that they'll take a zero tolerance approach to this. Um, and this, this, sounds, this sounds fine in rhetoric and, and most people would be happy with this. This means that anyone found guilty of violence against women um, will be punished to the full extent and rigours of the law and people are generally happy with this but I think a useful guide here a person that can help us think about this is and I'm I'm leaning heavily here in another podcast um, I don't know if you've been listening to um, is it Talking Politics by David Runciman and Catherine Carr they did a, they did a series on the history of ideas um, and I was listening to them recently and uh, they'd one really they'd one great one on um, Mary um, Wollstonecraft and uh, Catherine McKinnon as well. Um, so Mary Wollstonecraft, um, she was an 18th century novelist um, and an advocate for women's rights um, in, in uh, England. Um, and she posed a key question, which was kind of central to her work as she talked about um, the rights of women. Um, so she was reflecting on the unjust relationship between men and women. And so she asks, how can we be sure that the state won't replicate the injustices that we wanted to tackle? So in another sense, how, how can the state, rather than become an instrument to remedy violence against women and prevent these injustices, actually become another version of these injustices? And this, this is a very, I think, helpful kind of entry point into kind of linking these two things together. So in this instance, we have the department which is saying we're going to have a zero tolerance on violence against women but we find that whenever there's reports into what is violence against women in the form of um, what has probably been the which has been the the basis of two unpublished reports we find that no zero zero tolerance just isn't there so and I think so I suppose when we refashion that question of Mary um, Wollstonecraft um, and make it a little bit more specific is how can we prevent the Department of Justice from replicating violence against women when we've tasked it um, as citizens to remove violence against women in society? And 
as and we kind of see that it's becoming another version of that as well. And I suppose the irony here as well, and there is an irony here, um, as there always is at, at any point, is that the Department of Justice has has shattered the glass ceiling completely. Um, we've had um, we've had a female minister for justice. We've had female ministers for justice. We've had a female general secretary. Um, we've a female director general of the prison service. We've had. Um, uh, Commissioner of the Garden of the Angara Khan has also been a woman at various points. Um, in fact, actually, I think three of the last four ministers of justice since 2014 have all been women as well. So this is actually a department that is um, in relation to hiring women to the top positions uh, has probably shown other departments up. Um, it has been very kind of progressive in that sense. But I suppose this maybe points to kind of the idea that the resistance of an institution to change as well, and um, that despite those in charge changing, that the institution remains. Um, and that even that kind of the replication of injustice kind of continues regardless who's in charge. It kind of shows the longevity of um, institutions. Coming on from that, what do you think institutionalization says about us? As a, a society, I think there's a few. I think there's a few things. Um, I think, and I think there's 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 people. I think to recognise that there, there are people working. There's academics and others working in Ireland and the UK that are probably much better placed than me uh, to talk about institutional that they've, they've devoted their careers to it and are much more probably on top of this. But I think from from my perspective and kind of from our centres, the centres kind of initial kind of dipping our toe into the water. I, th- I think some of the key things that we can kind of say is that institutions can can mutate and morph and change over time and i suppose what i mean by this is that the the phenomenon of institutionalization is a tricky phenomenon in that we have um we've seen kind of the the institutionalization of that kind of came with um the poor law um, kind of in uh, before the even the creation of the of the state kind of um the kind of the idea of less eligibility in the workhouses and then we kind of i've seen that progress through kind of the industrial schools the borstals um the magdalene laundries um to the very recent um which i'm always shocked by that the last mother baby home closed in the mid 1990s um so progressing we've seen institutionalized change and mutate and morph um and i think what what i think what 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 this ability to morph um it makes it tricky to to recognize institutionalization in in your own time so i think what what i mean by that is that i we can look back and see um the magdalene laundries and the reformatory schools and think that's shocking like it's it's just words don't express kind of what occurred within those institutionalizations kind of at the hands of the church and the state but then we're also then it can it can lead us kind of i think we look back then and think that's institution we've we've dealt with that we've had the reports we've had kind of the the public outcry we've had some steps kind of in response to that but then we sometimes think oh that's that's done we maybe um, just close it off but then actually if we think about kind of We've we've housing hubs, we've direct provision, we've prisons, we've all these various forms of institutionalization that are present now. And I think I think that is is a key thing, is how we kind of um, can recognize it in our present. And I think if we're thinking specifically about um uh, women in prison, the profile of women in prison now um overlaps heavily with those in 
Magdalene laundries and mother and baby homes. Um, and what I mean by that is that our prisons are full of poor women, just as those institutions were. Um, that a high proportion, I think there was a, there was a, a parliamentary question recently, which, um, which gave a breakdown of kind of the sentences that women were in prison for. Um, and I think, I think one in six of those under sentence were there for, for shoplifting. And shoplifting is a, it's a frivolous crime, but for, for women who are often poor and primary caregivers, it's often a crime of necessity as well. Um, so these are, are incidents of people that are sentenced for um, kind of handling of stolen goods as well. And this is often under coercion because of debt as well. So there's lots of things. And so these are these are just property crimes. These aren't crimes against the person. There's no being hurt. The person poses no risk to society. Stealing uh, makeup from a shop doesn't particularly pose a risk to my um, being. So, so I, I think it's to it's to recognise that, and I suppose as well as that, there's there's I think it, the latest figures of the number of women in the Doka Centre and Limerick Prison. I often I've talked about the Doka Centre a lot, but there's also the female wing of Limerick Prison as well, and um, which is also overcrowded and has the same profiles as well, and um, but it's just slightly smaller. It's kind of a capacity. It's it's I think 34 prisoners this morning and a capacity of 28. But I suppose it's. The latest figures suggest that there's about 80% of women in prison have children. So again, you start to see the profile of those who've institutionalized in the past are the same as those who are institutionalizing now. Um, so it's just to make that point that history history has a has a really funny way of repeating itself and continuing to repeat. And it's just when we kind of become aware of that. Um, I think it's also really important though to to listen to experts, you know, to yeah. listen to people who have done that research or who have have that institutional memory um, to, and when they engage, like it really struck me um, and you mentioned family hubs as well. It really struck me that, you know, when the the then minister Owen Murphy, when he announced homeless hubs um, back in February, I think 2017, like IREC, the Irish Human Rights and Equality Mm. Commission, were straight out of the traps. They had a policy briefing done and yeah. published in the July saying this will risk institutionalizing families yeah. immediately. Yeah. And we still progress that policy. Like yeah. It's still budgeted for. It was budgeted for last year. It's no doubt going to be budgeted for again. Um, you know, that that wasn't even a factor mm. that that was that was almost accepted as an outcome of this policy. Yeah. And, you know, there was some debate back around 2019, um, you know, where there was there was the government were coming out with their own spin that, oh, mm. nobody stays there for more than six months. Their quarterly data would suggest otherwise. Yeah. Um, you know, and they, I think at one point it was something like 42 percent of the households that were there were there for more than six months. Yeah. Um, so I think you're right. You know, it's, it's an interesting one where we tend to look back at institutionalization and we mm. we tend to kind of shake our heads and look sorrowful. But we continue to perpetuate that that difficulty, that othering of, you know, you're poor, you're you're damaged in some way. We really don't know what else to do with you. This is we warehouse you. This is this is where you go. Exactly. And, and I suppose I, I remember from that time as well and and that kind of Iraq response to kind of the proposal as well. And it was defended as, like you kind of said, it was the this is only temporary, that nobody will be there longer than six months. And it was it's a real, I think it's a real lesson for kind of caution about institutionalization that even, and 
I, I don't know I don't know a person's intentions or department's intentions, but um there probably was it maybe there was a naivety that this would just be a short time kind of uh, option, but that that rarely that rarely is the case, and our, our history kind of tells us otherwise. Um, and we've been very slow to learn that lesson as well. That even 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 the proposal or kind of the design of kind of a short term measure, if we're proposing kind of stopgap, like like we can think about we can think about short term prison sentences for women, and um, we can think about homeless hubs. We can think about direct provision. If we're if we're if we're thinking about kind of stopgap measures, um, that don't address kind of the the welfare needs of the person in their entirety. Um, we will always be left with warehousing, but we we have we have no means for them to progress their life. So we just kind of provide kind of rudimentary shelter and then let the cards fall where they may kind of thing. So and and that should that that should uh, it it should it should give um, it should give anyone who anyone in department developing kind of things along that line kind of real real pause for thought because like I suppose the reality is um like and I suppose to to drop to drop down to our um further depths of despair but uh like there will be the same way there's been public inquiries into kind of institutionalization from the 70s and 80s um and kind of reports it'll be the same in what 2029 in the 20, 20, late 2040s, early 2050s, I'm sure direct provision and kind of homeless hubs and female imprisonment will find their time as well. That's where we'll, we'll look back and think, how did, how did that kind of occur? Um, and I suppose that's, I think that should be, I suppose, worrying to kind of those that kind of implement those policies as well, because um, there was a, there was no opaqueness to how things happened maybe in the 70s in the 50s 60s 70s and 80s but there's there's a lot of paper trails now and receipts and we know who decision makers so i would be if i was making decisions along those lines i would be very loath to kind of um pursue institutionalization because um it's it's little i think those inquiries would be different um if they happen um so imagine you are making those decisions now bring us back from the depths keith yeah what would your proposals for reform i suppose a, a point in the direction of of restorative justice as opposed to punitive justice what can we do what can we do better um i'm i'm going to be uh, I'll, I'll be tricksy here i'm, I'm going to slip that question a wee bit uh colette um well, there's 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 people much better placed on restorative justice, and I think who can talk about its ethos and applicability. But I think the instinct the instinct amongst policy analysts, research, and advocates, um, kind of like you and I, is to is to think about alternatives that we always want to have alternatives. We never want to just be kind of negative or kind of to be to be dismissed as being uh, hypercritical and not having a constructive kind of proposal. So our I think our instinct is always towards kind of alternatives, and that's 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 a good thing. But I think there's important there's important lessons from um, from early kind of uh, penal abolitionists, so people who wanted to abolish prison in the, in the 1970s, particularly in kind of Norway and the Netherlands. So they find that in their haste to kind of not sound like they were completely off the reservation, they proposed kind of alternatives and kind of community based kind of sanctions to kind of imprisonment. And so what they found was that over time, so their initial their their rationale was that over time these community based sanctions. Um, and non-carceral kind of sanctions will 
replace kind of um, imprisonment. But what actually happened was as they reflected in the 90s towards kind of the end of their careers was they found that the, um, the community sanctions were there and present and developed. But so too did the carceral kind of methods as well. So, so more and more people were going to prison, but people were also receiving community sanctions as well. So, so what happened was that as one increased, the other didn't decrease. So, and I think where we are at present with female imprisonment in Ireland is that we actually need to focus on even more fundamental things than kind of what's maybe alternatives to imprisonment are like restorative justice. And I think this is for, because I suppose I'm not convinced that the Department of Justice is the mechanism to tackle violence against women for, for a start. And I think we can argue about what departments might be better kind of suited for that as well. Um, I think if we're thinking about kind of just prison for those that commit murders, the, the department is fine. But I think regarding kind of culture change, I don't think the department is for that. Um, but I think I think where we're at at the moment, stepping back from alternatives and stepping back from the idea of restorative justice is how we put checks on the state to prevent it replicating violence against women. So kind of going back to kind of that question that we kind of had from Mary and Wollstonecraft as well. So how do we stop the state replicating violence against women when we've tasked it with kind of solving that? So, so how do we, at the moment, I think we need to think about how we put checks in place to kind of limit the power of the state or the, 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 the power of the department and to kind of create a rebalance almost. Because the state isn't very good at kind of keeping itself in check and the institutions aren't very good at keeping themselves in check. They're very poor at tackling kind of the injustices within themselves. Um, and so I suppose if I'm thinking specifically, and I'm getting to the positives now, I've kind of, I've, I've exhausted myself on <laughs> kind of the, the, uh, the direness of it all. But if we're thinking specifically about the topic of women in prison, um, I, I have three, three main proposals that I think are useful. The first two are legislative in nature. Um, and could quick, could happen quite quickly. Um, and the second is a much more longer, painful process. Um, so I think, firstly, um, I think we should expand the role of the Ombudsman um, to include prisons. So the remit of the Ombudsman for Ireland should be, um, should be expanded to be an independent body for prison complaints. Um, uh, at the moment, there's an internal complaints mechanism, um, and this has been on the radar of the department. It's been in various uh, position paper, strategy papers um, since 2017. Um, I think the then minister, um, Charlie Flanagan, was talking about kind of this new model of um, prisoner complaints, um, which would be coming in. Um, I think it's time just to say, look, this isn't this isn't coming in. And if it does come in, um, I think there's, there's real doubts about whether the transparency and level of accountability that's there will be present. Um, so I think the I think the the role of the ombudsman with kind of its its stated position of examining complaints from members of the public, which prisoners are members of the public, mm -hmm. they're still part of our um, po uh, polis um, uh, who believe they've been unfairly treated by certain public service providers, which the um, depart or the uh, prison services. Um, so I think that fits within the the role of the ombudsman. Um, and I think the role of the ombudsman is it's be independent. It can publish directly, and it could also make findings that are binding of the state as well. That the state is legislatively um, compelled to kind of make redress or make kind of accommodations for certain uh, situations. As well. So that's kind of one thing. And I suppose just to make the point as well is that in 2020, um, and this is from another PQ, I think it was that only 
So there's there's six different types of complaints that prisoners uh, can make. Um, they're from F, A to F. Um, and A is the most serious one. Um, it's often kind of serious assault and various things. Um, and only two category A complaints um, were upheld in 2020. So this is only 8% of serious complaints were upheld in 20, uh, 2020. Um, and a prisoner doesn't take a complaint lightly as well, because a prisoner will re- will re- will face retaliation and recrimination based on that as well. So I think we need to kind of recognise kind of those numbers aren't are, are worrying as well that an internal complaints mechanism only upheld only upheld two complaints in in the, in the whole twelve month period. And um, so that would be my first one is kind of expanding the remit of the ombudsman of uh, to include prisons just to say look enough of enough this has been this has been five years um, or longer um, that this hasn't come in that we we need to find different mechanisms to do that and, me- and mechanisms that will ensure transparency and accountability as well. Um, my second kind of proposal would be that um, the legislation around the inspect- the office of the inspector of prisons needs to be changed so they can publish reports directly. It's it's not, and, and this happens in, in, I think, in the UK as well, um, within their um, inspector of prisons, they can publish directly, I think. Um, but anyway, what this would mean is that, no, sorry, actually, I think it's, I think it's Scott, Yes, I think it's the UK that can publish directly. But anyway, I think what is what's important here is that um, justice delayed is also just denied, and we we hear that all the time as well. But if a report goes and just mothballs on a shelf for for years on end, um, if this if this if, if these reports are maybe released in five years' time, um, there's little there's little merit to that because that doesn't bring any redress to kind of prison staff and and prisoners who have been harmed um through kind of the contents of of the findings um so i think the inspector needs to be able to kind of publish directly to to the public um so that we can kind of examine that and so as civil society bodies as uh, social justice ireland as the iprt as the jesuit center as we can all kind of scrutinize those and kind of um uh really kind of see things in a timely manner because um even to see how these uh, findings are implemented as well um, do you know keith has that ever been suggested um it would be a um it's been a it's been a regular kind of uh, proposal by both um the uh, irish penal reform trust and us and by others as well is that um is has that there the, ever been any rationale given for why it's not being considered it's it's often if it's uh, if if a question is then put to the department, I think it's often kind of dismissed as that um, the inspector of prisons is an independent body, so its independence is kind of uh, as it's kind of stated within the legislation. But if you can't publish reports directly, yeah. <laughs> not fully independent. How independent are you? Um, you don't get to publish your own reports. Yeah. Um, mm. And then I suppose the third thing, and this is kind of the bigger thing, um, and this is probably, and this is what's great about kind of this podcast and kind of, um, and I think there's there's probably potential for you to kind of get other people that are more knowledgeable about violence and women, uh, violence against women as well, um, to kind of talk about this, because I think it's, I think there's, uh, um, there's definitely room kind of within the discourse at the moment for that. But I think we, there needs to be a wider conversation about what we mean when we talk about violence against women, because I don't think it's, um, I, I think we, I don't think it's, I don't think it's enough that we just kind of equate it to kind of those very high profile murder cases and kind of um, uh, um, that that's sufficient or even kind of 
domestic violence as well um, and kind of um, gender-based violence, but also kind of how, how the state kind of carry out violence against women as well. Um, and that's kind of important. I think that's where we need to go as well because and kind of how, how we actually put a, a more coherent plan in place, not just kind of have a, a strategy where we'll have zero tolerance on those that perpetrate it, but kind of how we kind of, what is, what is it, what is it culturally we kind of need to do and what we need to kind of, and why, why is it kind of central within our culture and why is institutionalization um, of women, um, um, because homeless hubs and direct provisions predominantly women as well. Um, uh, so like what 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 is it that what is it what is it that and that, that's a that's a tougher conversation but I think that's that's worth worth kind of at least at least trying to start having um I uh, think there's a I think you're right I think it's absolutely critical because there's almost a, a thought experiment in it where mm-hmm. you know close your eyes and think about what violence against women actually is and you will have that very narrow definition of yeah. the very high profile you know, murder case, and and then obviously the the um, domestic violence or the, the the domestic abuse. But what you won't have is the discussion of why some cases become high profile, yeah. and how very very similar circumstances, tragically similar circumstances, are not given the same profile. You know, is it the location in which they they take place? Um, is it the you know purported character of, of the victim you know and it, yeah. there's a there's a huge huge discussion to be had about how we actually define that i think that that's that's a yeah. huge recommendation because if we, if we think of the like if, if we think about the um about the most three high profile cases we can think of in recent time um if you apply kind of a ethnicity lens or kind of a class-based lens to them it led to differences in how they were reported and how they were framed and constructed as well. So certain, well, I suppose to to like to to drag it back to prisons um, and the harms there that kind of certain women um, will will not get the zero tolerance that kind of their um, that what happens to them kind of deserves as well. Others will, some others won't, um, and that's kind of and that and that can't be that can't be something arbitrary that we just kind of let based on kind of media cycles and kind of um uh, maybe where there's political gain to be made as well um because there is political gain to be made um by kind of um having law and order and zero tolerance for someone then kind of report suppression and kind of dismissiveness on the other hand as well so justice shouldn't be that arbitrary as well there should be kind of a, at least kind of a at least kind of some move towards kind of a rule-based kind of justice. I think that's uh, even a bare minimum. With that, I'm going to say thank you so, so much, Keith. It's been absolutely phenomenal to have you. Um, and definitely a lot of food for thought there on some podcasts. Thank you for recommending other people's podcasts on my podcast. Um, no well, I, I didn't want to say, I didn't want to say that people should download it before um, they, they should download Social Justice Matters before they download the <laughs> But no, thank you so, so much. I really yeah, no, it's been, it. been a pleasure and uh, it's been great to talk to you again, Colette. Um, so it's uh, enjoyable as always. So. Thank you so much for listening. Keith's work and that of his colleagues is available on the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice website. That is www.jcfj.ie and I highly recommend checking that out. And please do remember if you have any ideas for podcasts, whether they're 10 minute lessons or look back series or interviews with 
clever and important people, please do get in touch with us at secretary at socialjustice.ie. And until next time, stay safe.